Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to what I believe will be the last Smart People Podcast episode of 2015. That means I, Chris Stemp, have the fortunate pleasure to sum up the year, if you will, to, to talk about what we've done, what we've enjoyed. And as you know, we do that in our Best Of series. The way we're doing it this year is I am going to do my Best Of, and then I believe next week John is going to do his Best Of. The reason I can't be positive is because obviously we record these slightly in advance and I don't know what John has in mind. He's really the gatekeeper to all this stuff. All right. So this is going to be a little less formal. Um, I'm going to do a little bit more talking and I don't do that too often. You know, if you go back and listen to the first, I don't know, couple dozen episodes, John and I shoot the, shoot the stuff at the beginning and it's kind of conversational and then as we moved on, I think people kind of let us know, hey, we're, we're listening because we want to hear the guests. And that's cool. I, I, I started to realize, you know, my job is to carry on a, a good, intelligent, semi-intelligent, uh, flowing conversation with the guests in a way that's a little different than many of the other interview shows that are very scripted or, I don't know, professional or whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and so that's what I started focusing on. That being said... I don't really do too much other talking or discussing what we learn and whatnot. So here's, here's what I'm going to do in this episode. I'm going to walk through about, I believe six episodes this year that I really enjoyed. And I'm going to pull out some sound clips and I'm going to play them for you. And I'm going to discuss a little bit about what they are. I'm going to let you do most of the interpreting and see if you like them. When I, when I was going through researching this, I tended to see a pattern and it's a pattern that obviously I know, but my interests very much are aligned with those who 
are, are trying to improve themselves. I'm a, I'm a self-help guy at, at heart. And after I went through and picked out my so-called favorite episodes, I realized the vast majority are in some shape or form self-help. That's the tone that this is going to take. And now realize that when I say best of, I don't really mean it. I, I mean more of these are the things that might have stuck with me personally. What you'll see is that John, I'm sure, is going to choose things that are much different than mine. And that's because we have different interests. And I think that's what makes the show great. These aren't just the only ones I enjoyed. For example, I really enjoyed the episode on Rust. I just really didn't have enough time to... to to force it into this. And I also didn't know if that might kind of throw off the flow of this. So I just went with what came to me, what I remembered. And also it's usually at the end of the year when it kind of hits me that what's been going on, what we've been doing, what I've been learning through this show and outside of it. And this year it's even a little more striking because it pretty much marks five years of doing this show. And I've never done anything really for five years. I don't think I'm the kind of guy usually that starts something and moves on. And I think there's a lot I can attribute to the longevity of this. First, it's my pure interest and passion that I think you guys notice. And it shows I I love every conversation, most every conversation. Also having an accountability partner. I know it's that term is a little overused, but Having John there going, hey, you know, where's the stuff for this week or what do we have lined up? It keeps me honest. And in the same way, I do the, I do the same to him. And so I think that's just important. Keep that in mind in your future endeavors. Also, it's you guys. I mean, I know this tends to get overused, I think. And I don't know how many people truly believe it. Actually, I think most do. But the emails I get, good and bad, you know, preferably the good ones. Sometimes they're so inspiring because it's people taking time out of their day to either simply say thank you, to provide genuine, meaningful, thoughtful feedback, or to even offer help or support in some way. As as I think I mentioned in the past, somebody who listened to the show knew that I had recently become a father and this person has a business on kind of consulting new p- parents. And she said, hey, look, you've provided me some value on your show. I'd like to provide you some value. I'd love to set up a Skype call and and answer any questions you have. And really, she changed the way we were operating as a family. She got me some sleep, you know, and, and taught me how to, uh, to, to be a little more comfortable in, in this role as a father. We've had people donate money, everything from a dollar to hundreds of dollars, which is also crazy and generous and a reminder to to what the community of this world can be. I mean, we've had emails from countries all over the place, you know, Africa, Russia, China. It's 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 a blast. Also the guests, you know, the guests say the nicest things. I mean, oftentimes I continue to find that the successful folks are also the the most genuine. They're nice. They give of their time and it's refreshing. So I just, you know, as we end 2015, wanted to say thank you. Um, I don't know how much more we got in the tank. Hopefully a lot. I think a lot. But you never know because it definitely takes its toll. But Smart People Podcast has been a journey. So let's get into some of my favorite parts of 
2015 as it relates to Smart People Podcast and our episodes. As always, I love your feedback. You know, we're at Smart People Pod on Twitter, or you can email us, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com and our website, obviously. Thanks for listening. If you're feeling in the giving spirit, really just tell a friend. We're trying we're always trying to grow the show. Um it's getting difficult because you have these big players coming in and, and so it helps with word of mouth. All right, so without further ado, in chronological order, if you will, I'm going to start with episode 178, where we interviewed Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly is the co-founder of Wired Magazine. And if you've ever read Wired Magazine, then you know how amazing it is. And Kevin is equally as amazing, having made it to the top of the magazine or media industry He's well-respected throughout. Many people know of, of him and how great of a creator he is. He's a senior maverick still at Wired Magazine, having co-founded it in 1993, and also co-founded the Ongoing Hackers Conference and was involved with the launch of The Well, a pioneering online service started in 1985. One of the things that makes Kevin unique is he's down to earth and he has this wide array of experiences that he does a great job bringing into these larger meanings, morals, stories, etc. And I felt that this was a great clip to help answer the age-old question, what do I want to be when I grow up? You know, we hear that a lot. Obviously, it is pretty much the reason this podcast was started. And I just thought, although we've heard a lot of great things over the years, this one is one that needs to go in that memory bank if you're struggling with it or have ever thought about it. So I'm asking Kevin, you know, how do you find your path? How do you know what you want to be when you grow up? And how do you work towards that? Here it is, Kevin Kelly. In a certain sense, my career as you might find in other people who have served wind up doing what they really love doing is is um not a straight line it's it's kind of this bouncy wiggly thing that would seem to be going nowhere for a long time and i think that's that's actually a common pattern it's not like there's a ladder that one climbs up or or that you see where you're going when you start off so Basically, in the beginning, I just assumed that I would be poor and unknown for most of my life. That was sort of, that was sort of the deal, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> because after high school, when I came to college, I didn't really want to go to college. I was trying to think about going to art school and then maybe going to MIT. I couldn't decide, and then eventually, basically, what happened was I dropped out. I, after a year, I just uh, I had I couldn't stand being in a classroom. I had to do something, so I took my camera and I went to Asia. So I think the answer is is um, I just did it. And I remember even at my young age of you know I was twenty twenty one whatever it was when I first left. I was think I I I remember saying I'll just pretend that I'm a millionaire. I'll just pretend that I have the money that I need. And kind of act as if money is not the constraint, but other things are. And I think that's maybe part of my advice to, to answer your question is that um, in the long run, usually money is usually not the gating factor of what you need to do to accomplish you know, these, these things that you have a passion about. 
usually enthusiasm and time are more important than money is. And so, um, and I think that continues to be true even now when I'm trying to decide about things to do, I don't think about the money so much as I think about like, you know, time, um, that that's the precious resource that that's the, that's the thing that I have and I can use. And that's what everybody has. And, and I have the enthusiasm and those are sort of, um, you can usually kind of work around not having money. In fact, not having money is actually often an advantage uh, in accomplishing things because it means that you can't buy solutions to the the little problems that come along. You actually have to kind of invent things, and that's where innovation comes from. That's why uh, a lot of innovation comes from startups. It's not because they're necessarily any smarter than anybody else. It's because they're more desperate. They don't have any money to to to, to buy solutions, and so they have to invent them. And I think um, I think if you know, if you're, if you're if you're doing things, you need either a lot of time or a lot of money. And it's always better to have more time than money. And and, and I think that um, uh, I kind of, for some reason, just got this idea that I uh, that that I would not let the having a lack of money become a hurdle, and I would use it as an opportunity to to do things. One of the things that I want to point out is you mentioned your background has been bouncing around and it's nonlinear. And at times you felt like you were going to be poor and unknown for a long time. And you came to peace with that. And I think it just gives a lot of people the, the sense that it's okay to not know as long as you're working towards something you believe in and something that you enjoy first and foremost. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely um, was not trying to become rich. You know, I think if, if for some people that that is that is you know to become independently wealthy or something that that is a goal, and so then that that becomes a little harder because that is their goal. But for me, that was never a goal. In fact, that was the opposite. I just assumed that was not going to be, um, or or famous, you know, rich or famous. And so, um, I, I so so I think aiming for that is really kind of dangerous. There are people who you know who set that as a goal and then they can achieve it, and that's fine. But um, there are a lot of other people whom that's for whom that's a goal and becomes very difficult to achieve. And, and I think it's much easier to uh, arrive there indirectly by you know, acquiring some mastery in, in something. And that's the second thing I would say about your question about passion, which is um, I recently read a book, Cal Newport, I think is his name. Yeah, um, yep. Too Good to Ignore, which kind of changed my mind a little bit about this idea of only following your, your, your passion because um, he made a really good case that if you look at people's lives, including my own, that um, it was it was by mastering something that you find your your passions. In other words, you you can't use um, your passion as the as the signal to getting where you want to go. Um, you actually have to master something. And what I mastered was photography. So so um, you use you use a mastery to actually find your passion because. Like my kids and many other young people, when they start off, they have no idea what they're really passionate about. They they don't know what they want to devote their life to. They and 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 that and that kind of uncertainty and ignorance becomes paralyzing. It's like, well, I don't I don't know what I'm good at. I don't know what I really want to give my all for, and therefore they kind of get stuck. Well, he suggests, and I. And I agree 100% is the way you get through that is you just master something. And 
once you master that, you begin to master other things, and that mastery will move you towards the place where you can match your mastery with the passion. So, and and in the beginning, it almost doesn't matter what you master; just master something that you can master, and then from that, you will master in the right direction as you continue to learn. And this is the the whole point: is is that you have to master something means deliberate practice. It means constantly trying to do something better and better and better not just like you do it so you don't think about it no it's the opposite you're mastering it in the sense that you are constantly improving and deliberately trying to get better and better and that movement moves you into the place where you are mastering your passion and welcome back wasn't that just some fantastic insight from kevin kelly it's a really interesting episode i would recommend go check it out if if you liked what you heard all right, moving on, we are going to fast forward to episode 195 as I spoke with Till Roneberg. Till is a sleep expert, or more specifically, he is the professor of chronobiology at the Institute of Medical Psychology at LMU in Munich, Germany. He's also the author of the book Internal Time, Chronotypes, Social Jet Lag, and why you're so tired. Okay, so I don't know if any of that makes sense. I don't know if you know what a chronotype is. But essentially, Till coined this term social jet lag. And here's why that's important. We're going to learn exactly what social jet lag is. But when I, when I was looking to interview Till, here's why I found him. I've always been a night person. I stay up late. I wake up late. In my whole life, people have said, oh, you're lazy, or you just want to sleep, or you sleep all the time. But really, it's because I'm up to 1 o'clock. So waking up at 6 doesn't make any sense. Okay, so, so when I found out about Till, who does research around this, and how your body regulates when you want to sleep, when you're tired, and how it's different for all people, and then he coined this term, social jet lag, to explain how that affects you. So in this first section, I just simply ask Till, what is chronobiology? Because I'm sure many of us have never heard it. So let's turn it over to him. Again, this is episode 195 with Till Roneberg. Oh, it's very simple. I mean, the word means the biology of time, but of course it's not the biology of time um, because it is a biology of temporal spaces. And there are four temporal spaces on Earth that may be relevant for the organisms. And those four are the tides with their 12 and a half hour rhythm, um, the day with its 24 hour rhythm, the lunar cycle with its 28 day rhythm, um, approximately, and then the, um, the annual rhythm, the yearly rhythm with its 365 days and, and some. And, and a quarter. Um, these times are not really for the biological organisms, and they're not times, they're spaces, meaning that they repeat each other. And it's one of the few um, areas in biology where biology can predict. If I would bet with you the six numbers that would come out in, in, in the lottery, um, you, you would certainly win. Uh, because I have no way of predicting it. But if I would bet with you that the sun would rise tomorrow at a certain time, that the tide 
that high tide would be tomorrow at a certain time. You would not even make the bet because you know that is so highly predictable that it can be predicted. And although it's in the future, it isn't really the future because it's a temporal structure that repeats itself and therefore becomes almost like the space around us, only that it's a temporal space. Hmm. And since things change over the course of the day, things, things, since things change over the course of a tidal rhythm or any other of those four rhythms, we can, um, we can anticipate those changes and appropriately anticipate the changes that we have to make um, to, to, to work optimally. When you put it like that, I mean, it makes it easier to understand why rhythms can play such an important role in our lives because they've been here long before us. They'll be here long after us. And they're actually, you know, when you put it like that, they're, they're much more telling than, than time itself because time in the way we look at it is a man-made construct, right? Uh, that I don't know. Um, um, the way we look at time is certainly man-made. We, uh, the way we measure time is man-made. So the units are almost arbitrary, although we, we have our units, um, um, adjusted to a day length mm, so sure. that we have 24 hours in a day. We don't actually have a very good sense how to measure time in our brains. We use incidents and events to estimate time, but um, time itself cannot be measured, whereas uh, the circadian system, as an example of the four chronobiological clocks that we know of, um, can can create a day within and that day within can be synchronized to the external day. And if you have a, um, a representation of a space, um, you can become independent. For example, if you close your eyes uh, now, you know the, where the door is you came into. You don't, and that's not memory. It's actually a, a space that's, that, your, that your brain offers you all the time, and it's, and it's a mental representation of this space. So you can close your eyes or open your eyes, and your brain always will know the specifications of the space. And if you now have an internal representation of um, the day, then um, every cell in your body will have that internal representation. And all you have to make sure is that this internal representation is synchronized properly to the external one, and then you can use it. You can um, consult your biochemical clock and say, when should I start gearing up, for example, my photosynthesis machine in order to have it working optimally um, before the sun rises. Welcome back. And in this last clip from Till, I pretty much straight up ask him, what is social jet lag? Essentially, are there night owls? Are there early birds? What does it mean? And what's our body doing? Here's what he said. Since we have a biological clock, um, that controls practically everything in our physiology, it also controls when we sleep um, optimally. We can also sleep quite well if we are exhausted. And that's, those are the two things that actually control our sleep. It's the time we were, the, the duration we were awake, uh, which makes us more and more exhausted, and a circadian biological clock controlled temporal window. Um, and that window is different in every person because in, every person has a different chronotype. Every person is adjusted to the day-night cycle differently, earlier or later. 
and it's not just two categories. It's like it's like body height. There are extreme early types, and they're very rare. Like like very short people are very rare, and then there are um, uh, extreme uh, tall people, giants. They're very rare, and they're extreme late types that are also rare. And both in body height and in chronotype, we have the majority somewhere in between. But there is a, a very strong individual um, component in when our clocks adjust to the light-dark cycle. And therefore, the optimal window when to sleep are different in every person. Social jet lag is nothing else but measuring what your internal timing system wants you to do optimally and what the social or external timing system wants you to do um, because you have to do it. You mentioned school or work. We have to be at work at a certain time and therefore we have to get up at a certain time. But maybe that get up is before our circadian sleep window has finished. And we have proof for that because, meanwhile, 85% of the population has to use an alarm clock on work days in order to wake up early enough to get to work. That is, 85% is the population. So it's, it's a ridiculous minority that still can um, uh, sleep without an alarm clock in order to be up um, ready early enough to go to sleep, uh, to go to work. All right, moving on, we are now going to episode 202, that's 202, with Ryan Holiday. Ryan's a media strategist and prominent writer on strategy and business. In this episode, we are talking about his newer best-selling book, The Obstacle is the Way. Again, self-helpy, but here's the difference. I really love what Ryan talks about in this book and in this episode regarding stoicism. It's one of those things that has continually popped up since I became aware of this subject, and many people are using it to explain how to be in the world, how to deal with a lot of the pressures and stresses of modern life, and it goes back a long time to the Stoics and, and the timeless philosophical principles laid down by a Roman emperor. So I'm going to let this one kind of run for about four minutes, and in it, I think I ask another question. But we start off here and I ask him, what is it about obstacles that are important? Why the emphasis on obstacles? I really enjoyed his answer. Here you go. Sure. Look, they're supposed to exist and they're supposed to be hard. If they weren't, if they weren't there, they didn't exist, everyone would do it and there probably wouldn't be much. Like wealth is created by scarcity, right? So it's the fact that there's not many people who have been successful at the thing that you're trying to do that makes it worth doing. That's You're carving a new path. There's going to be shit in the way. So don't fool yourself into thinking that, you know, something that you want to do that you think is going to be worthwhile, that you're going to be successful at, is going to be easy. It's by definition, it's not going to be. And what I what I say in the book and what I wrote it all about is, is this idea that it comes from the philosophy known as stoicism, which is that, you know, we don't control what happens to us. We don't control what obstacles we face. We control how we respond to those obstacles. And the formula in the book, which which comes from Marcus Aurelius, he says, you know, the impediment to action advances action, what stands in the way becomes the way. And that's the attitude that you want to look at an obstacle with. It's like, hey, look, this isn't what I wanted to be here. This is not what I was expecting to be here. But this is a different opportunity for me to to be great, to, to be creative, to be courageous, 
to persevere, to persist, to work hard. This thing is an opportunity for me to be excellent in some way. And if you do that, the obstacle is actually not an obstacle, it's an opportunity. That actually was a very clear way of putting it. The obstacle almost provides the jumping off point, if you will. Like uh -huh. until you hit that and conquer it, you're you're not really doing anything special. Is that kind of a fair uh, yeah, it, exactly. Look, you're doing whatever it is that you're doing, and then life intervenes or the world intervenes. And now you have a chance, you have a, you have a choice. You can be frustrated by it, you can be upset by it, or you can say, okay, this is a different avenue that I need to go on. Just like you're driving down the street and there's a red light, so you turn or you wait or you reroute your directions. Like you have a choice. And railing against something you cannot change is an option. I just don't suggest taking it. <laughs> That reminds me of the post you wrote about uh, when the horn went out on your car. I, yeah, I, I, I love it because I drive in D.C. almost every day, and I just want to punch people sometimes. But you, you look around, and you're screaming in your car, and nobody cares. Man, nobody cares. What you, you know, they don't, you're not going to change anything. Right, exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about stoicism because when I first read that, I was thinking, okay, I've I haven't dove into the that idea before. So I just know being stoic is kind of courageous, right? I would just right. but you you dive into it way more than that and you use historians and philosophers. So what have you uncovered that is stoicism? Sure. So stoicism is is obviously it's a philosophy. It's from ancient Greece and Rome. It was popular with all sorts of different individuals. It's really interesting. The the two most prominent Stoics were Marcus Aurelius, who was the emperor of Rome. And Epictetus, who was a, a former slave. So you basically have this philosophy that was designed for essentially two opposite lifestyles, right? One, which is unlimited success, and then the other, which is endless hardship. And this, the philosophy is designed to help you cope with either. And it's this idea of controlling yourself, controlling your emotions, controlling your reactions, controlling your expectations, because... Again, you don't control other people. You don't control external events. You control yourself. And so it's this philosophy that, you know, because of its nature, was, is, is imminently practical and therefore, you know, appreciated by soldiers, by politicians, by statesmen, um, by entrepreneurs, by writers, by, by people who are out there really doing stuff. Um, it's not, in fact, college professors don't really like talking about it because it's not there's not much room for interpretation. It's like how you, it's, it's really, it's how you live. And so I wanted to take this, this philosophy, which is how to live, how to be a good person and specifically apply it to something we all face, which is, you know, adversity and difficulties along the road of trying to accomplish a task or start an organization or, you know, pursue a passion or something like that. We face obstacles and to me, stoicism is a framework or an operating system, if you will, that allows you to, to, to actually do that. All right. Next episode, we don't have to go very far for. It is the next week after Ryan Holiday. That's episode 203 with Adrian Gostick. Now, I got to say, this is one of those episodes or interviews that the entire thing stuck with me throughout the year. It's something that I will forever utilize in my life in understanding why we do what we do. Adrian is a global thought leader on workplace strategy and the author of several successful books on employee engagement. In this episode, we're talking about his recent book titled, What Motivates Me? Put Your Passions to Work. And here's the thing. 
We hear this word passion all the time. You know I say it on the show. I, I'm up in the air, right? I, I've said this many times. My biggest passion is sports, but I never really figured out how I wanted to work in sports if I wasn't the athlete. And that went out the window a long time ago. And then Adrian came along. And he made me understand that instead of pursuing your passion, first, find out what motivates you. Man, I, I just, I really love that paradigm shift. So in this first question, I really just asked Adrian, what brought you to this realization about motivation? What fuels your fire behind this? And, and what happened? And I thought this was an interesting and useful way to start this discussion. Here it is, Adrian Gostick. About four years ago, uh, we began our own journey. We were working before then for a large corporation. You know, we liked our work, but we really weren't that. We were losing our motivation. There was something wrong. There was something was missing. And we read all the, you know, we were researchers on motivation. We'd read all the books. But there was something that just wasn't right. And, uh, you know, if you looked at our, you know, the typical drivers that people say you need in a job, we had interesting work, we had autonomy, we had mastery of our subject, and we had strong purpose, but we were miserable. So what we've realized is that all the, 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 the books out there, all the sort of the learnings on motivation didn't really fit us. The motivation is very personal. We ended up leaving our the organization, Chester Elton, my co-author and I, and forming a new company called The Culture Works. And we now work with organizations around the world. And we love our work because we have molded our work to fit our core motivators. And what we found in the research is that you can't say everybody is motivated by three things or five things. In fact, in our research, we found 23 different possibilities that could motivate people. Everything from creativity to empathy to developing others to money. And it just depends on the person. So it's highly personal. We realized we weren't really motivated. We weren't really happy. Even though we had great jobs that paid well, and there was just something missing in our lives. So we began this, this journey of exploration and studying hundreds of thousands of people with, with some great research partners to figure out really what does drive people. So if you like this kind of stuff, I definitely recommend you listen to the entire episode. That's episode 203. And we talk about motivation. Uh, Adrian talks about how you can figure out what motivates you. That's what his book is really all about. But but I want to turn it over to the next section of the interview, and I'm going to let it run for a while, maybe five or six minutes. And in this, he gives recommendations on how to change, right? How, how to make that change in your life once you know what motivates you. And I think that's where a lot of people struggle is we kind of have the knowledge, but we don't know the steps for action. And I, I like the way he frames this. So here we go. You know, the first idea is we would always, always say, try to sculpt first within your job. And one of the terms that we, we fall out in the book is this idea of job sculpting. The many of the people we interviewed, and we interviewed thousands of people for this, uh, for the work and what motivates me, most of the people who were the happiest at work didn't have this dream job that they, you know, all of a sudden stumbled upon. You know, somebody calls them up and says, hey, we want you to be the, you know, new photographer for the Sports Illustrated swimsuit calendar. <laughs> you know, that doesn't happen. What we found, most people who have the, who have the happiest lives at work, they, they've sculpted their jobs over time. They've proved themselves. They've come in early. They've stayed late. Their boss needs them and wants them. And they go into their boss and say, you know what? I would be, I'd love to make presentations. Is there something I could do in my work 
to bring a little of this in. I love the variety and the fun and the impact of, of making a presentation in front of a group. And the boss says, yeah, we don't do anything like that here. Uh, and the, the employee keeps going, well, what about this? And what about this? And the boss finally starts opening up and realizing, okay, maybe there's something we could do to help this person be a little bit more motivated. Try to make, try to sculpt where you are before you leave, before you jump, because, you know, there, you know, most of the time the grass is really not greener on the other side of the fence. Now, with that said, um, there certainly are a lot of people who are just sort of going through the motions in their work lives, and you know that more than anyone. Um, there are people who just sort of, you know, it's, they're, they're, they're robots at work, and that's not helping their companies, it's not helping them, and it's not helping their customers. And so, you know, sometimes bosses get a little nervous about this idea of, you know, somebody reading a book like this. But, you know, if your employee is miserable, uh, it's not a good thing to have on your team. So they need to find their way. So, so in most cases, people can sculpt. But if they can't, and if you are miscast, then it is probably time to try something new. And in the book, we actually have a, a chapter on, we call it embarking on a hero's journey. You know, it's it's like thinking about you know Katniss Everdeen in uh, in the Hunger Games, mm -hmm. you know, or or Frodo. You know, every hero in history has followed the same sort of path. They, you know, they realize there's there's a need for change. There's a call to action. They have to take a leap into the unknown. They they use mentors. There are tests that come come upon them, and they learn lessons along the way. And eventually, they come back to this point where. They're back in their, their known world, but it's a better world because they've, they've gained a skill or, or they're changed. And, and likewise, as we jump and make that leap too, when we have realized we've got to do something different with our lives, there's this process that we go through. Sometimes it takes a long time. You know, it can take a couple of years to retrain ourselves, to, uh, to find the mentors that will help us along our way. And mentors are so important. Um, to go through those tests and challenges, we may we may go back to school. We may we may uh, you know start working you know on our part time to learn the new skill. But eventually, what we're going to be doing feels feels new, but it's going to feel better because we've finally aligned our work with our motivation. So you know sometimes we have to take those risks in our lives and realize you know we've got to leap, we've got to jump. You know, that honestly was pure gold. And I say that because you basically defined, you know, the the 10 plus years uh, since when I graduated college. And I know that when people can articulate it in the way that I actually feel myself going through my life curve, that it's the same thing for a lot of other people in this journey. And it's that idea of first, I wish somebody would have said, look, you have to put in some time. It's not overnight. The people that are successful, you can't be aiming for them right off the bat. So, you know, in that job you're in or uh, wherever situation, definitely make, you know, start making uh, your work towards that goal. But it's not this huge leap. It's never this, you know, I really hated the phrase when, when people say, oh, you know, jump off the cliff and, and build your wings on the way down because <laughs> it's not really true. It's too terrifying. So then we had somebody on one time that said, you know, build a bridge, you know, yeah. and, and that's what I did. I was I was in a big corporation. I said, I think I want to work for myself, but that's a huge jump. So let's go a little smaller. So I'm at midsize. Then I said, let's go real small and, and help start a nonprofit with a few people. And eventually I said, all right, I'm ready to do this on my own and started my coaching and speaking. And I think that 
again, it's such a long journey, but now I have something to talk about. And I understand when people say, hey, this is what I'm going through. Absolutely. Nobody ever said this is easy. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, well, you know, what we uh, what we find is that and we talked about this a little bit before we, we began is that, look, it's not just about doing what you love, too, because, you know, you may love, uh, you know, dancing, uh, you know, but you'll never be a professional dancer. Um, you know, I love playing hockey, but I'll never play in the NHL. Um, so my passions cannot just be what I do if there's not, if I, if I'm not good enough to do it professionally, or if I'm not able to find work in this field yet, then again, uh, I can't just be chasing my strengths because strengths may hold me hostage. We have a great story in the book about Andre Agassi, who, who became one of the greatest tennis players in the world all the time, hating tennis, despising it. Uh, but his dad made him become a great tennis player. Now, uh, you know, it wasn't until later in his life when he started a foundation that helped others that he started to realize life can be fun again. And, uh, and so sometimes we get kind of pigeonholed by our strengths. What we're talking about here is you can't just look at your strengths or personality and you can't just look at your motivators. You've got to bring the two, to, all of them together to figure out, okay, here's what I'm good at and here's what I love to do. Can I start to figure out where a career could be or how I could sculpt my career I'm in to do a little bit of more of what uh, I love to do and a little less of what frustrates me? Okay. Hope you enjoyed that. Moving on, we are going to episode 209, and this is with Stephen Kotler as we're talking decoding the science of ultimate human performance. Stephen is a well-known best-selling author. And the book we're primarily discussing here is The Rise of Superman, drawing on over a decade of research and firsthand reporting with dozens of top action and adventure sports athletes. Kotler explores the frontier science of flow, an optimal state of consciousness in which we perform and feel our best. So I'm going to get right into it here. I'm going to let this run for a while, maybe eight minutes, and you'll you'll get a good idea of what we're talking about. What is flow? So here we go. Lots of people have lots of different words for flow. Being in the zone, runner's high. If you're a beatnik jazz musician, you called it being in the pocket. If you're a basketball player, you call it being unconscious. Stand-up comedians call it the forever box, right? Flow is a technical term, um, and we can talk about why in a second, but it's this term scientists prefer, and it's technically defined as an optimal state of consciousness, a state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And I think most people have had you know, some experience with flow, right? Flow are those moments of total absorption when you get so sucked in by the task at hand that your sense of self, your sense of self-consciousness, they disappear completely. Time dilates, which is a fancy way of saying it passes strangely. Sometimes five hours will go by in like five minutes. Sometimes it slows down. You get that freeze frame effect like you were in a car crash or if you're watching The Matrix. And throughout all aspects of performance, that's mental and physical go through the roof. Well, what I'm really interested in is if you can, because I know you cover this in the book, talk about the science behind it, because there have been moments, I have a terrible memory, but because I played sports my whole life, there are moments that I could relive any second if I want to. I just kind of close my eyes and be like, like very specific, that double play, that home run, that pitch. So I'd like to know what was going on in my brain while I'm experiencing flow. So I'll speak to... Uh, 
I'll speak to uh, what's going on in your brain first, and then we can talk about uh, what memory, because there are very specific reasons you can remember those that double play, et cetera, et cetera. So normally, if you want to talk about what's going on in the brain during flow, you've got to talk about three things. Neural anatomy, which is where something is taking place, neuroelectricity, and neurochemistry, which are the two ways the brain sends signals, right? We're going to leave neuroelectricity out of the, out of the equation um, just because it's, it's very complicated. Um, the old idea about ultimate performance flow was, um, and I'm sure it's familiar to most of your listeners, they call it the 10% brain. It's this idea that, hey, we only use 10% of our brain normally, so ultimate performance, aka flow, must be all of our brain totally on overdrive, right? Turns out we had it exactly backwards. Instead of parts of the brain becoming hyperactive in flow, they're actually doing the opposite. They're deactivating. The technical term for this is transient, meaning temporary, hypofrontality. Hypo is H-Y-P-O. It's the opposite of hyper. It means to slow down, to shut down, to deactivate. Frontality is your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain right behind your forehead that houses all of your higher cognitive function, your executive function, your sense of will, your sense of self, your morality, your ability to do complex decision-making. All of that's prefrontal cortex. That shuts off during flow. So why, for example, does time pass so strangely? Because time, it turns out, is calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. Parts of it start to wink out. We can no longer separate past from present from future, and we're plunged into what psychologists call the deep now. So that's part of it. Now let's talk about neurochemistry, and we'll get to your, your memory question. Simultaneously with parts of your prefrontal cortex turning off, your brain is also being flooded with five of the pot most potent neurochemicals that can be produced. All of these are performance-enhancing chemicals, right? They're also reward drugs. They're the five most potent pleasure chemicals the brain can produce, which is why flow is considered one of the most addictive states on Earth. Or, you know, scientists, again, don't like the word addictive, so they use autotelic. It means an end in itself. What that means is once an experience starts producing flow, we will go extraordinarily far out of our way to get more of it. This happens because of these really potent neurochemicals that get dumped in your brain. Now, one of the other things that happens in flow is learning is incredibly, incredibly heightened. So just to put some numbers around it so you know what I'm talking about, in studies run by the U.S. military, snipers in flow learn 200 to 500% faster than normal. The point here is 200 to 500% more learning. That's Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours to mastery cut in half. Now, why does that happen? happens because besides enhancing performance and motivation and all this stuff that the neurochemicals do, neurochemicals exist to tag experiences. They're really big neon signs that say important, save for later, right? The more neurochemicals that show up during the experience, the better chance the experience moves from short-term holding into long-term storage. Flow, because this is this huge neurochemical dump, moves everything into long-term storage. It greatly amplifies learning, which is why you can remember every moment of that double play. Mm. I can tell you, by the way, my first deep flow state, I was 13 years old. I was skiing. I can tell you where I was skiing. I can tell you what I was wearing. I can tell you what my best friend who was behind me was wearing. I was There was a girl in school who I liked, and she was on the chairlift. I can tell you what she was wearing. I bet you could. Man, I love that flow stuff. It's just, it's just good. All right, going to end it all with episode 215, which was in November, so we, we almost reached the end of the year here, and I interviewed Todd Cashton. Todd has a PhD in clinical psychology and is a professor at George Mason University. He's also the author of the new book, The Upside of Your Dark Side, 
why being your whole self, not just your good self, drives success and fulfillment. Now, I will say this was one of my favorite interviews to be a part of for the entire year because of the way Todd and I just clicked. We have similar views, very similar interests, actually even a similar background, which we discuss in the episode. But it was one of those ones that the time just flew by, talking about flow, and I felt enriched and just uplifted and also educated. And of course, the things he said were were great, and, and that adds to the reason why it's in this episode. In this first question that I'm... Or, And this first segment that I'm going to play for you is another one that will forever stick with me. I mean, really, really one of those things I'll never forget. And it made a lot of sense in my life. And that is when Todd, I I want you to listen to this whole part, but that's when Todd basically says that all of our experiences are unique. The way we judge certain things that happen to us, specifically, he's talking about um, painful experiences. They are unique to us, and so we can't rate them against other things. So what might be extremely traumatic to you might not be the same for somebody else. And the reason I think this is important is because many of us oftentimes experience something that hits us very hard. And then we look around and go, yeah, but is it okay for us to feel this way when when this happened to this person or there's all this going on in the world? And I think what's important is the brain doesn't necessarily differentiate. It, it's, it's entirely unique to you. So it interprets fear as fear, regardless of the stimulus. I don't know if I did a great job explaining it there, so I'm going to turn it over to Todd here. But I thought it was important for me to emphasize just because it's had a big impact on my life. Here we go. Todd Cashton. So here's the thing. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've spent over 17 years working with people suffering from social anxiety disorder, panic attacks. Um, I've worked in three VA hospitals working with combat veterans returning from seeing their friends die and them almost dying themselves and having post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, depression. And then the difficulty, which no one talks about in the news, is the return to civilian life where there aren't chances for, there are not opportunities and chances for heroism, and courageousness when you have to take out the recyclables on Tuesdays and Thursdays? And how do you return back to a life that seems so much less meaningful than life or death? And so if you're, we all go through struggles and I have plenty of stories myself as everyone's trauma is relative. You know, one person losing their, their goldfish and it's their first exposure to death can be comparable to someone else losing their father who dies. If it's, it might or maybe when you're 30 or 40 years old. And so we can't rate and rank people's traumas when we are experiencing these downward spirals. I think for most people, it makes perfect sense is that let, let me start with trying to be happy. And then I would ask this, which is if you got to this point, this elusive state of happiness, well, what would you do then? What would it look like? And once you start asking a question of, visualizing what would you do differently what would your conversations be like what would you be talking about who would you be approaching what would you do on your free time um if you had uh, a work meeting how would it be different than the funk that you're in now you would start to hear the early harbingers of what people value 
about people's strengths and about people using and not using them. And that's kind of where the action is to actually be happy. We can't just turn a switch or press a button on off to be happy. If we had that, you wouldn't have a $2 billion self-help market. Um, and if we had that, we wouldn't have consultants going into workplaces to try and prove morale. The reason that we have so much science and so many books, and I think there's lots of redundancy, is because we do not have that switch. Our, we evolved as human beings not to be happy, but to pass on our genes, have sex as much as humanly possible, and survive another day. And the only reason that we have happiness from an evolutionary standpoint, which we need to understand what human beings actually are to try to improve ourselves and help other people improve their lives. We have happiness because it attracts people to us. When we're in a happy mood, people, people are more likely to want to talk to us, spend time with us, get to know us, and maybe form a relationship with us. And if we understand, though, but trying too hard to be happy, you don't actually make the, the headway into creating a life that's actually worth living to be proud of. And for my last clip of 2015, I want to play this part that I, I talked to Todd and I asked him, why is it so hard for people to understand what they want, to clarify what they want? And look, it may not be for you. So, uh, you know, if not, forgive me. But I hear it a lot. People email me, you know, I do coaching. I hear it a lot. Or people think they know what they want, come to find out later it wasn't. So I really like what Todd had to say here. I hope you enjoy it. Afterwards, come on back and we'll close things out. The amount of podcasts I listen to on different topics. I mean, I just listened to one on the history of money and how uh, exposure to, to money actually affects our brains, the nucleus accumbens, in a way, where, which is where like the, one of the the rich reward centers of the brain in the same way for men as it does to beautiful naked bodies. And then you, you ask, like, well, what's, what would I do with this information? And the response is always be aware of money has this effect on you. So, but there's something to be said. It, it always starts with, you need to be aware of what's your philosophy of life now, actually. And that's a, that's a loaded word, which people are like, listen, 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 I don't have time for a philosophy of life. So the, the, uh, the better way of thinking about this in the modern world is what are the values and goals that are so important to you that you will not let other ones get in the way? Because that's the nucleus of who you are. What, is the, what are the values and goals that if someone didn't know them about you, they would, you would say, we hang out a lot, we talk a lot, but they don't know me. Right. For me, it's like one of them is putting my personal signature on my work, which means that if someone zigs, I often zag because I kind of just see like, well, if everyone's going in this direction, life's just too complicated. Human beings are too sophisticated. There must be missing something. And I go the other direction. And I also have a certain personality style growing up in in New York City of growing up in the, the punk rock revolution. And, you know, as a 13 to 15 year old that's affected my work, despite that I am supposedly a white collar scientist. You definitely um, love the Beastie Boys. I love the Beastie Boys. Absolutely. I love Fugazi. <laughs> you, know, you know, I love, you know, I love, you know, I grew up on Black Sabbath when I was, uh, when I was like a seven year old. I mean, <laughs> no question about Rage Against the Machine. Oh, yeah. Um, and this affects my views now, even though I'm supposed to be, you know, in a tweed jacket with the elbows, with the elbow pads, right? Um, and people get surprised by that. That's a core value. People, you need, to, people need to know 
what you stand for, you know, and, and it can't just be your kids and your romantic partner. It can't just be, um, I love doing my best. It's got to be more personalized than that or else you can't make headway into that. You're not, you should not be interchangeable with every human being that's on the planet for doing this. Um, but a more important life hack strategy tactic that I would give is you need to know what your emotional biases are. And so if I was to ask, I mean, just, just think of, just think of like a few basic emotions that everybody knows, right? Anger, anxiety, guilt, embarrassment, boredom, sadness. And I could ask, and I ask this rhetorically to the people listening of those negative in quote emotions, which one are you the least comfortable experiencing? Which one are you, will you spend the most energy to avoid experiencing? Which one do you have the most hard time understanding? Which is the most difficult to express to other people? Which one do you have the hardest time when someone else is experiencing it when they share it to you? And as you learn your biases, you start to realize that there are obstacles inside your head that prevent you from making traction towards meaningful goals. But you can only know them if you know what your biases are. And, and one of the things of going around the world, talking about this book, giving workshops to organizations about this, the content in this book, is people, men and women, um, the emotion that people have the most biases towards ends up being anger. And that surprised me. I thought really? it would be, I thought it'd be embarrassment or I thought it would be fear. And it ends up people freak out over anger. All right. So there it is. 2015 in a nutshell and about a 40 minute episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it again. This is just a way to kind of recap, you know, you might not agree. You might, you might agree with some, I'd love to know what you think. Hit us up smartpeoplepodcast.com or on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. We look forward to an exciting 2016. We're putting more effort and more resources to continually try to make the show better. I actually just got a shipment of new equipment, so hopefully maybe even the sound steps up a bit, which you know I think we've done a good job, especially if you go back to the beginning. And we are also looking to bring somebody on board part-time to help us secure new interviews and maybe step up our game a little bit. Thanks again. We're at smartpeoplepodcast.com. If you haven't, make sure to subscribe. Go to your podcast player, search for Smart People Podcast. Happy New Year. Happy 2015. Excited for 2016. Much love.